0: The following audio is from Midtown Fellowship in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in becoming a part of our extended family, visit MidtownColumbia.com partner. I see we got some guests in the house with us today. Super glad you all are here worshiping with us. Just wanted to extend a special uh, welcome to you all. If you uh, got one of our bulletins and you are new here with us, we would love for you to fill the bottom of that out for us and drop it in the offering baskets when they come around at the very end. We just want to be able to acknowledge that you are with us today, acknowledge your presence, and let you know we were glad uh, to have you be with us. If you can, go ahead and grab a Bible. Turn to John chapter 8. We're going to kick it off at verse 51. We are starting a new series today, one that I am very excited about. We're just calling it, I Am God. I Am God. One of the things that we know to be true about our culture and our times today is that various groups seem to have an idea of, of who Jesus is. Right? Everybody's got an opinion on who Jesus is. If we want to truly know who he is, what he is about, we need to look to him, let him speak for himself, let him reveal for himself who he is to us, and we trust that to be the truth about who he is, and we don't listen to man's opinions or whatever might seem wise or might seem trendy at the time. Time magazine ranks Jesus as the most influential person in human history. Ranks him as the most influential person in human history. History. I was doing a little research earlier this week. Many uh, in Islam see Jesus as one of the beloved prophets, right? Wouldn't say he's the son of God or anything like that. Wouldn't say ultimately that he is the savior, but would say that he is one of Allah's most beloved prophets. Jesus' name is mentioned 25 times in the Quran as a very morally upright man. That God uses to guide mankind. So there's this view of Jesus that no, we, we're not gonna bow down to him and worship him, but we're gonna say that he's a good guy, right? We're gonna say that he was used by God to do some great things. Everyone has an opinion of Jesus and who he is, but who is he actually? So we're gonna look at these I am statements that Jesus makes in the book of John for the next several weeks as we get into the summer. We're gonna hear him say things like, I am the bread of life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. He's going to say, I am the light on the world. We're going to look at what is he saying to be true about himself? What is he revealing about himself? We must go to his word to know who Christ is. Amen? Amen. Today, we're going to look at what I think is maybe the biggest statement that Jesus makes about himself in his entire ministry. We're going to look at it in, again, John chapter 8 verse 51. Let's get into the context a little bit. So Jesus is, has been challenging the Jews on some of their beliefs about him. The, this, this religious group of people there, he's been challenging them. The, 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 the conversation or the argument tends to escalate the more that they talk about. It. He's challenging them because they think that because they are descendants of Abraham, that they, were, that they now know God or are right with God based on their family history. He's letting them know just because your relatives, your ancestors know God doesn't mean that you know God. There's a word in that for somebody. He also told them that if God was really their father, their father, then they would know him and that they would love him. But because God is not their father, they don't know him. They begin to even question whether or not Jesus is being oppressed or controlled by a demon at this point as he is challenging them. Again, the tension, the anger gets higher and higher. Let's jump in at verse 51. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you had a demon. See, if we would have read a few verses earlier, they would have said, "You, you have a demon, right? They kind of said it as a question. After he said that, after he makes the statement that those who believe in me will live forever, they say, no, 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 now we know that you have a demon. You must be being controlled and led by a demon or Satan himself. We continue on. Abraham died as the prophets did, yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Like, hold on, Jesus. Like, who are you saying you are? You're saying, you're saying that those who believe in you and take heed to your words will live forever. But Abraham, the one who we esteem, may be higher than any man who ever lived. He died. The prophets after, them, after him, they died too. So who are you saying you are? Who exactly are you claiming to be? I know you ain't saying you're greater than Abraham. Is the implication here. Keep moving, verse 54. Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. If my father glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God, but you have not known him, I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and I keep his word. Jesus stays savage with the, with the Jews. I don't, know, I don't know what it is. He just keeps coming for them like political correctness is not on the agenda. Not on the agenda. Verse 56, your father Abraham, now this, he's pushing even more. Check out what he says here. They already esteem Abraham highly. They're already kind of asking, you saying you greater than Abraham? Check out what Jesus said. Verse 56, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Right, so he pushed it just a little bit further. He said, Abraham, the one that you're talking about, the one that you celebrate and esteem so highly, the one that you find your identity in because you're connected with him, he was glad to see my day. Verse 57, so the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old and you have seen Abraham? What you mean Abraham saw you? You ain't even 50 years old, Jesus. Verse 58, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Jesus takes it to that next step. It's like they were trying to push to see exactly what Jesus was going to say. Jesus went ahead and let them know who he was. And look at the response by the Jews. They picked up stones to stone him. No trial No jury, no judge, Uh, this group of religious people went from inquisitive and angry with Jesus, and when Jesus said, I am, to we are going to stone you on the spot. And apparently it seems like in the temple, or at least around the temple, and says, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. This religious group of people flipped, switched. What what would change them from being a, okay, I don't like this Jesus, I'm angry, I'm going to continue asking questions to, okay, now you need to die. We're going to kill you on the spot without trial, judge, or jury. I mean, they're almost as mad at Jesus as LeBron was with J.R. Smith in the game one of the five. I mean, they were almost that level mad. What got them this angry? What turned this group of morally religious people into a mob of killers on the spot? As soon as I saw that play, I was like, I got to make a joke about that on Sunday. I don't know how I'm going to do it yet, but I got to get it in. Exodus chapter 3, to to further understand what Jesus is saying when he says, I am, to further understand why the Jews will go so far as to want to kill him on the spot without trial, judge, or jury. Let's look at what Jesus is referring to. Exodus chapter 3, we're going to hit 1 through 4, starting at verse 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness. And came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. Not sure how much you know about fire. (laughs) If you've ever made a fire, you know at some point, if the fire keeps burning, you're gonna have to keep throwing more wood on there because the fire is dependent on the wood as a source of fuel and energy. And if the wood is gone, the fire is going to go out. See, fire is much like almost everything else in creation. We we have this interdependence that we have, right? We, We need oxygen to survive. We need food and nutrients to survive. The fire needs the wood and the oxygen to survive. That's how creation in general works, that we don't just sustain and continue on on our own. But see, Moses is looking at this fire that's in this bush and said, he looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. This bush is is not being consumed by the fire. This fire has an energy source that is separate from the bush. This fire is being fueled by something that doesn't fit into the laws of nature because this fire doesn't need wood to continue to burn. Verse 3, and Moses said, I will turn aside and see this great sight while the bush is not burned. Moses just perplexed, like what in the world is going on with this bush that's not even burning up? Verse 4, when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. So God speaks to him out of the bush. Just to give you a quick summary of the next few verses, he's going to uh, tell Abraham that he wants to use him to free his people from slavery in Egypt. He t- talks about, I've heard their cries, I've seen their oppression, I've seen their pain, I'm coming to free them from the slavery to Egypt that they are currently finding themselves in. So he tells, he tells Moses, you're going to go to Pharaoh, you're going to tell them to let my people go, you're going to tell this, this kingdom of Egypt to let my people go. Pick back up in verse 13. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name, what shall I say to them? So Moses was like, okay, God, cool, 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 yeah, we're going to do this, all right, that's cool. Uh, but when I go to them, and I'm like, hey, the God of your forefathers is, is, is going to free you out of here, and they're like, what is his name? And they're like, well, who is this God that you represent? What do I say? Like, what am I, who, who am I going to tell them that you are? You got to understand, this is a very uh, polytheistic society at this time. Everybody believes in all different kinds of gods, the rain god, the moon god, the sun god. Like, there's all these, the fertility god, there's all these different types of gods. And so when he, he says, when I come to them, and they're like, well, which god is this? What am I going to say to them when they ask me what your name is? What do I, what do I say to them? Verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he says, "Say this to the people of Israel: I Am has sent you." The church I grew, I grew up in, we, we call it, from this point we call him the Great I Am, brother. He is the Great I Am. I'll tell you a quick story to illustrate what God is doing right here. Uh, this was probably a few weeks ago. My brother-in-law was at the house, uh, and somehow he, I think he brought up uh, the sport of badminton, and my boys were around, and my boys were like, "What's badminton?" And so to, to help them understand, he did was actually a very effective teaching technique. He said, "Well, it's kind of like tennis." means volleyball, right? It's kind of like tennis and volleyball put together. So what he did was he used something that they had an understanding of to relate it to something that they didn't have an understanding of so that they can gain some clarity and and a concept of this new thing that he was trying to introduce to them. It's a very helpful and effective teaching technique. When someone does not have a concept of something related to something that they do understand and say, hey, it's kind of like this, a very effective teaching technique. It's, It's like if somebody asked you what is Ant like? And you you probably be like, well, he's like Denzel in his prime, right? He's like Denzel Washington in his prime. That's probably what you would say because, you know, that's an effective teaching technique. You relate it to something that they do know to show the similarities. I'm sure that's what you would say. I'm sure that's what you would say. I'm sure. As God as God is explaining himself and revealing himself to his people who, though he, he made a promise to their ancestors, they don't quite know who he is. As God is revealing himself To them, He does the exact opposite of that, right? It would have been effective if if he was like, well, he's kind of like the sun guy, but he's also like the rain guy because he provides for us. That that would have been an effective form of teaching, but you got to understand God does the exact opposite. He says, I am who I am. I'm me. I'm separate. I'm completely different from anything you have a category for. In fact, for God to define himself by relating himself to something else is to reduce just how great and amazing he is. For God to relate himself to something else that they already have a concept for would be an injustice to his character. For his first statement about himself to be like, well, I'm kind of like this thing, I'm kind of like this thing. It's like, no, no, no. The, the, the creator is so much greater than all of his creation and everything that they have a concept for that he can't rightly be compared to anything else. So he says, I am who I am. He says, the only thing that I can truly be compared to is me. I can't just give you an easy to understand sentence and concept so you can wrap your mind around me. I'm greater than anything you've ever seen, anything you've ever heard of, anything you've ever experienced, anything you've ever understood. I am different. I am separate. I am holy. I am who I am. Who are you? I'm me. Now, of course, he goes on to reveal himself by by his acts, by his saving work. He he gives them the law to reveal himself. But when it comes to justifying himself, he can't compare himself to anything else. That, That will reduce their understanding of who he is. He says, I am who I am. Unique, holy, powerful, righteous, glorious, gracious, wise, infinite. I don't fit into your boxes. I'm not something you can wrap your mind around. The only thing I can be compared to is myself. He is separate. He is different. In 2 Chronicles chapter 3, verse, uh, sorry, chapter 6, verses 13 and 14, after Solomon is dedicating the temple, look at how he speaks of our God. Then he knelt on his knees in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands towards heaven and said, O Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven or on earth, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. He said, there is none like you. He says, in heaven or on earth. Isaiah 46 verse 9 says, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. There is none that I can be compared to. I sit by myself, enthroned above all others. The King of kings, the Lord of lords, the great I am. The creator that sits above his creation. And he says that he's the I am out of the burning bush. So he's revealing himself himself. As who he is, by by telling us that he's the great I am, but he's also revealing who he is by coming through this fire that's not consuming anything. This fire that has this energy source and this source for 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 life and for and to be able to continue on that doesn't depend on the rest of creation. He's self-existent. He doesn't need anything else in order for him to do what he does or be who he is. He just is. I am who I am, he just exists. He does, the creator does not need the creation to continue on. You and I, we need other things. But God, he, no, no, he's the great I am. He exists in and of himself. He's the beginning and the end. Nothing caused him. He is the uncaused one. Nothing created him. He has no beginning. He is the great I am. He doesn't need anything else to exist. Everything else needs him to exist. No beginning, no end. So why did the Jews pick up the stones to kill Jesus? Because they are very aware of the great I am. They are very aware of what God revealed to his people, what God revealed to Moses that day on Mount Horeb. That this, this was a sacred term. This was a sacred term for them. You, uh, oftentimes, they, they wouldn't even speak this word. So this, is all, this is actually a reference to his name, Yahweh. They wouldn't even say that name. And Jesus comes in and says, before Abraham was, I am. And they picked up the stones to kill him, to stone him right there. No trial, no jury, just execution. They knew that Jesus was claiming to be God. They knew that Jesus was claiming to be the uncreated one, the uncaused one. They knew that he was claiming to be the sustainer of all life, the one who was holy and set apart and different from all the rest. And for someone in that time, in that context, that was not only, uh, it it was blasphemy and it was not only a wrong thing to do, but it was a crime punishable by death. And stoning. So when Jesus says that, just so we're clear, when he says, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. He kind of draws a line in the sand on where they're going to stand with it. They can no longer be neutral with Jesus. Because if his claim is true, then the only proper response is worship. But if his claim is false, then the only proper response is to stone him. He draws a line right in the middle of the sand. That's how Jesus. That's what Jesus always does when he reveals himself to us. He draws a line in the sand. Do you believe in me or do you not? These huge claims that Jesus makes throughout this book that we'll be getting into in this series, it's going, to, it's going to continue to reveal to us that there's really no middle ground with Jesus. You're either with him or you're not. Right? There's no such thing as just adding a little Jesus into your life to make you feel good. right? That, that's actually a rejection of who he is. You either fall down to him in worship or you completely reject him and want to get rid of him. As these Jews did. Jesus' conversation with the Jews here, it, it continued to increase in, in intensity. The, the, the tension there increased until he said, I am. Then they wanted to kill him for blasphemy. This still holds true today. When Jesus reveals himself, he, he, he's drawing a line in, in the sand. He, he, you have to pick a side with Jesus. Jesus claims to be God himself, God in the flesh, came down to earth to save this world from the corruption that sin has caused, lived a perfect, righteous, and obedient life, put the sins of the world on himself, died on the cross for his people, and then rose again with all power in his hand, giving credit for his righteous life to all who put faith in him, to all who put trust in him, and and. He demands that we love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, being willing to sacrifice our wants, our desires, our passions, and even our lives if it comes down to it for his mission and for his glory. And since then, and since then, since Jesus made these statements and lived and died and was raised from the grave, hundreds, probably thousands of people have lost their lives clinging to the hope that Jesus said to them, whatever you sacrifice for me, you will gain more on the other side. You, you, actually, you will always gain more as you sacrifice for me than you lose. And people be, have believed that to their dying brethren, They died as martyrs representing him for his glory. So you got to understand something about Jesus. He's either a liar or he's Lord. I'll take it a step for, further. He's either good or he's evil. There's no in between. Like this idea that Jesus is just a good man? No, he, he can't just be a good man. People have died. People have left their families, their homes, their country, their possessions and given up everything believing that he will offer eternal life in the next life. There's no middle ground with Jesus. Either he is one of the most evil people that has ever walked the earth or he is Lord and we should bow down and worship him. There is no middle ground. There is no middle ground. When he claims to be I am, there is no middle ground with Jesus. He is either a liar and a criminal, or he is Lord. He should either be worshipped or he should be convicted as one of the world's worst criminals. He's either worthy of our complete devotion and obedience to his every command, or it's a waste of our time to even bring up his name again. This Jesus that we worship, unfortunately, this idea... That I can be cool with Jesus without really submitting myself to his commands and his rule has worked its way so deeply into the church. So deeply into our, into our hearts, this, this, this idea that it's okay. if Maybe, maybe I'll just show up on Sunday, I'll give a little bit of money to the church, and then I'll live as if I don't know him at all for the rest of my week. And I can still consider myself to be a Christian, to be a follower of Jesus, to be the follower of the great I am. That's foolishness. That's foolishness. Either he is Lord and worthy of complete submission and obedience, or he is a liar and he should be condemned and we should never listen to a word that he says. There is no middle ground with Jesus. If you're with Jesus, he's not on your team, you're on his team. He's not ultimately about you, you're ultimately about him. He's not something you add to your life to accomplish your dreams. No, he, he's someone that comes in and now is your life and all your dreams and desires are submitted to him. He's the great I am. If he comes into your life, he's coming to take over. He's coming to completely take over. Heard one pastor say, Jesus doesn't come to take sides. He comes to take over. Saints, I got to be real with us for a second. I believe there are many churchgoers who know all the Christian words, the phrases, the cliches, can quote the scriptures that the pastor or the preacher consistently quotes, have prayed a prayer at some point to ask Christ into their life. Maybe because they didn't want to go to hell or they wanted Jesus to help them accomplish their dreams or whatever. And so many I truly believe aren't truly believers because they've never actually submitted to him as Lord. Because they've never actually come to a place of brokenness and surrender to Christ. I'm not talking about the Christian who's struggling with, with weaknesses and area of sins for, for long periods of time. It's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the individual who, who really doesn't seek to submit to Christ, but, but, but has been around maybe the church or been around Christians or been around the word of God so long that now we know how to play the game. Now we know how to say the right things at the right times. person who's never really sought to give their life over in submission to the great I am. Check out how Jesus talks about what it means to be a follower of his. Matthew 6, 24 through 25. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. He says the way to truly find life, the way to truly find salvation is through submission to him. It's through what we often refer to as a dying to self. A dying to our own uh, ultimate, ultimate desires. Dying to, to, to trying to be our own king. Dying to, to trying to live our lives primarily to please our own desires and preferences. He says, whoever tries to hold on to their life, they'll actually lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he says, will find it. Luke 14, 33. So therefore, if any one of you who does not renounce Sorry. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. He said, you can't really say that you're following me if you're not willing to renounce all that you have, he says. This idea of renouncing our possessions and what we have is the concept of, of looking, at our, looking at our money, looking at our possessions, our cars, our homes, our clothes, our furniture, whatever it is, and saying, God, this belongs to you. This also doesn't belong to me. So please help me and teach me how to use it for your glory and your purposes and not my own. Because it ultimately doesn't belong to me. The earth is yours and the fullness thereof, it belongs to you, God. Teach me how to live like that is true. Is the heart of the Christian. Teach me to use my money like it belongs to you and not to me. Teach me to use my money like it's not just about me and my preferences, but ultimately it's about you, the great I am, the one who, who all things are created by, for, and through. Questions, some questions for us today. Are you seeking to let the great I am reign in how you handle your money? Are we seeking to let the great I am reign in how we spend our time? Are we seeking to let the great I am reign in how we manage our relationships? Are we seeking to let the great I am reign in how we treat those who have hurt us? knowing that the great I am commands that we love even our enemies. Are you seeking to let the great I am reign in your thought life, what you dwell on, what you meditate on? Are you seeking to let the great I am reign in how you consume media, social media or otherwise? Are you seeking to let the great I am for those who are married reign in your marriage and the way you treat your spouse? Are you seeking to let the great I am reign in your friendships, In your speech, in your free time, are we seeking to let the great I am reign? Are we seeking his reign over our own? I said earlier, there's no middle ground with Jesus. You either love him or you hate him. You either bow down and worship him or you stone him and try to get rid of him. You either worship him as king and the great I am or you seek to do away with him like the Jews of this passage. I say that because to pretend as if Jesus is something I can just add to my life to make me feel better about my life without living for the purpose of growing in submission to him is, in fact, trying to get rid of Jesus. If you're just trying to add Jesus on to make your life a little bit better, that, in fact, is actually trying to get rid of Jesus. Because you've you've done away with the real Jesus, the great I am, and you've made a different Jesus that suits you and makes you comfortable. You've gotten rid of Jesus. You might as well have stoned him like the Jews attempted to do. And if we're honest, we've all done this with Jesus, have we not? We've all been half-hearted with our worship at times. We've all decided that we want to go our way and not seek how the great I am desires us to live. We've all sought to be our own Lord and follow our own rules. We've all submitted ourselves over to sin. We've all been held bondage by the sin that tempts us, that we too often allow to lead us. But the good news and the thing that I want to encourage us with last today is that him being the great I am, yes, it does mean that he's Lord. It does mean that he's worthy to be our Lord, but it also means that he's powerful to be our Savior, that he is the great I am. It means he's more powerful than our greatest enemies of sin Itself. See, in the, in the Old Testament, that familiar story that I told, God revealed himself to Abraham, I'm oh, sorry, to Moses, saying that I am that I am. That I am. He, he is the great I am. And then, But what did he do after that? He continued to reveal himself to be Savior as he rescued them from their slavery and from their bondage to Egypt. And not only did he get them out of Egypt, but he got them to the promised land, the one that he had promised to their ancestors years and years and years before. He got them to the place that he had promised them, the land flowing with milk and honey. And as Jesus revealed himself to be the great I am here in the New Testament in John chapter 8, if you move on forward to the end of the book, you see that he continues to reveal himself to be Savior as he goes to the cross and dies for his people. That he lives a perfect life showing that he defeats sin. That he died and was raised from the grave showing that he has defeated death himself. And he's coming back to get his people to take us to our promised land. To take us to the new Jerusalem. To take us to the new heavens and the new earth. Because he is the great I am. And just as much as he is worthy to be our Lord, he is powerful to be our savior. And free us from the sin that has so often entangled us and enslaved us. He's going to take us to the promised land in paradise, for we will see the great I am sitting on the throne. Sitting on the throne because he is king, because he has conquered all of his people's biggest enemies. He has conquered our sin, our guilt, and our shame, conquered our grief, conquered our pain, conquered our sickness, conquered death itself for his people because he is the great I am. Worthy to be Lord, mighty to be our savior. And the king... The great I am, the one who rules over all creation, the first and the last, the beginning and the end, the uncreated one, the uncaused one, the mighty one who reigns over the cosmos. The Bible says he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. He will wipe away every tear from our eyes and there will be no more more pain or crying or death or mourning anymore. For we will be with our God, the great I am, our champion, our king, our father, our Lord, the great I am. He will reign and rule forever. Fam, the only fitting response is worship. The only fitting response is worship. The only fitting response to the great I am who claims to be Lord and then dies for us that we might actually be able to worship him as Lord. There's only one fitting response and it is complete surrender. It is complete submission. It's complete obedience to our God as he empowers us through his Holy Spirit. The great I am, he reigns. May he continue to reign in our lives May we continue to look forward to the day when we see his throne more clearly than we ever have. Let me pray for us, fam. Father, you are good to us. You are good to us. You are the great I am. You are the one worthy of our submission, worthy of our worship. You are the one that we should cling to above all others. You are the one that we should love with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, all of our strength. And you are the one that has conquered our greatest enemies, Lord. You are the one that has destroyed the things that seem to be destroying us at times. You are the one that has overwhelmed the things that seem to be overwhelming us, Lord. Will we remember your victory? Will we remember that you are the great I am? And that means that we should seek your rule in our hearts and we should rejoice and celebrate your rule over all creation. God, you have been good to us. Father, you and you alone are worthy of worship. You and you alone are God. You and you alone are the great I am. There is none like you. In all the heavens and all the earth, there there is no God like you. You are greater than all of your creation. Greater than all your creation, God.